Meridian is a small community. Everybody is, you know, kind of in cahoots with everybody. You pat my back, I pat yours. Police getting paid off. You know, I mean, it's just a little bit of everything goes on around here. We have some council people that are looking at the way things are being run in the city, and a lot has been swept on the rug in the government system, and I believe that a lot of it is that they are covering people. It's the half and half not here, who you know. That's the way it works here. You get more time here for a drug charge than you do for a murder or rape charge. That's the type of stuff that goes on here. Are they incompetent? Oh, they, they all, they all in the book. Incompetent and dirty too. They real dirty, real tacky too. It's so much bigger than a city official or a mayor or a police department or a corrupt county. It's way bigger than that. It's the search of a firing squad. Nobody can shoot at the guy in the middle because the guy in the middle's friends will be shooting back at him. And that's why they all get away with it. Everybody's got dirt on everybody else. And until somebody comes in and just sweeps it out, nobody knows it. This is Mississippi. There's an old saying, the small pieces make up the big picture. And in this case, I'm not implying that Christian's death is the big picture. Hear me out. This story has always been about Christian. There's no denying that. But it's also always been bigger than Christian. So I would argue that his death is actually one of those small pieces, a pixel that makes the big picture. What happened on February 26, 2014, will forever be a tragedy. And what followed Christian's death, whether incompetence or pure laziness or possibly even corruption, that's also tragic. The flip side of that, a family giving every ounce of themselves for years in an ongoing fight for justice, again, tragic. The case of Christian Andriacchio is, for many reasons, a big deal, and it should be treated as such. And it needs the attention it's getting and more. But no matter how you dice up what happened that day, or rather what you believe happened that day, there is one conclusion that all paths lead to, and that is that it simply does not add up. I remember when I met with Dr. Jonathan Arden, a forensic pathologist who worked this case, and he made that comment, that it doesn't add up. He of course would go on to determine that the manner of death was homicide, but that comment, it doesn't add up, has stuck with me. Because no matter where you land on the manner of death, that comment stands true. Take the words suicide and homicide off the table. Still, something went wrong that day. So I want to take some time to share my final thoughts regarding the death of Christian Andriacchio. 
And what about that day, February 26th, that fails to add up? Let's start back at the beginning. When we began our deep dive into this case, one of the first things we covered were the alibis of Dylan and Whitley. There's many issues about their alibis. It starts with the fact that their alibis for that day cannot be confirmed by anyone else, and that includes one another. Yes, not even their stories align with one another. And that should have been a massive red flag in the early days of this. But there's even more details I just can't seem to make sense of. For example, the gunshot residue. Whitley and Dylan both say they were not around when the shot was fired. Dylan says he was at Best Buy, and Whitley says she was asleep, which I will always feel is impossible. But either way, if they weren't around when it happened, how did they get the gunshot residue on their hands? You can make the argument that it was transferred by touching Christian's body, or the gun, while awaiting MPD's arrival. And that could totally be the case. But the problem is, that's not what they said. It seems Dylan never even had to explain the presence of GSR on his hands. And as for Whitley, I'm sure you haven't forgotten her explanation, that it came from shooting guns the night before. Any expert I've spoken with, and any research I've done on GSR, makes it pretty clear that this is not plausible. And that's not because she took a shower or washed her hands, nothing like that. She may have and she may not have. It really doesn't matter because that GSR should have worn off strictly based on time and typical usage of the hands on an average day. Another issue I have is regarding the story that Christian put a gun to his head in an argument with Whitley. Assuming this actually happened, I have two things to point out. The first, why would Whitley not tell authorities about this? Dylan thought it was necessary. I'd argue that it was necessary to tell them. But if you remember when asked the question by MPD, did Christian ever mention hurting himself? Her response was, I don't think so. And keep in mind, even if the story about putting the gun to his head was fabricated, and that's why she was unable to corroborate it, there are still text messages in Christian's phone, whether he typed them or not, that should have lent a different answer than I don't think so. Which brings me to the second thing I'd like to point out on this topic, what Dylan had to say about it. When questioned by MPD, Dylan stated that Christian had mentioned hurting himself before, though he didn't go into any details. And of course we know Dylan was the one, and the only one, to tell the story of Christian putting the gun to his head. So maybe it did happen, exactly as he told it. But the problem doesn't really lie there. If Dylan is telling the truth about this, then the real problem lies with what he did after this. First of all, he did not alert anyone to Christian threatening to take his own life. That was an opportunity to try and protect a friend. But okay, he failed to do that. He did, however, say that he took the gun from Christian and hid it. I commend him for that. That was a good move on his part. But he stated that when he left to go to Best Buy, he gave the gun back to Christian. And this is where Jay Arrington's belief in the crime of culpable negligence comes into play. You saw him put a gun to his head, you took the gun and hid it, then you gave it back. And it's not like he gave it back when all parties were present. According to his own statement, he chose to give the gun back when he planned to leave the apartment and while Whitley was sleeping, which left Christian alone and unsupervised. Now, I am by no means an expert in criminal law, but from my understanding, this has to be considered culpable negligence. But where Dylan and Whitley's alibis really become problematic is when you consider the science. The science says a lot in this case, and there are many points that could be argued, such as an apparent cleaning of the scene, 
and that the gun was found manually decocked and in a position that it should not have been found in. Gunshot residue should also be considered. But that's not what I want to focus on. I want to focus on the areas where I feel the science really becomes indisputable. Rigor mortis and liver mortis, which in turn reveal a discrepancy in the body position and the time of death originally reported. To make things simple, I'll read directly from Dr. Arden's report. He says, The photographs from the scene and from the morgue strongly suggest that Christian was in well-developed rigor mortis at the scene. The time to develop strong rigor mortis varies, but typically requires at least several hours and is consistent with a significantly longer interval on the order of four to 12 hours. The morgue photographs indicate that he was transported in the body bag in essentially the same position he was found, namely bent at the waist and at the knees, face down. The photos also demonstrate that he had fixed liver mortis on the back of his right leg, especially on the calf, which is totally inconsistent with his positioning at the scene, in which his right calf is facing up, so blood should have drained away from that area by gravity. The time for fixation of liver mortis is highly variable, but is on the order of hours. He had to have been positioned with his right calf facing down for some period of time for liver mortis to appear and then fix on that surface. This shows that his body had been moved and his time of death was much earlier than the 911 call, calling into question the account given by the people who made that call. Another thing to consider here is that everything Dr. Arden shared came well before the recent accounts given by first the responding EMT who confirmed that Christian was in well-developed rigor. And second, a woman who lived in a neighboring apartment who stated she heard the gunshot that day around 12.30 p.m., around four hours before Christian's death was reported, which is all just further confirmation that Christian had been dead for hours. And if this doesn't call for more investigating, then I don't know whatever will, because to me, this one is a clear-cut sign of foul play. Going back to their alibis, Knowing this information, it makes it very difficult to put any sort of trust in their statements. And they should have had to, and still should have to, give an explanation for this, and for many more things. As it pertains to Christian's death, I understand there are likely tons and tons of other questions you have, but many questions I simply cannot answer with certainty. Why would Whitley keep possession of Christian's phone until asked directly by authorities? Was Christian's Jeep moved? How did Christian's gun that he kept in his Jeep get to the apartment? Was his gun even the weapon that killed him? Is gun night related in any way? Were more people involved? Or do more people at least have knowledge they aren't sharing? There's a long list of names to consider, which includes the former DA's son. And I know there are many more questions you can add to this. I don't think it's too late to find answers to these questions. And that brings me some level of comfort knowing that. But I think this is what really makes this case so frustrating. Knowing that these questions and more could have been answered years ago had this case been handled properly. And therefore, you could venture to say that there also could have been closure years ago. Again, Christian Andriacchio's death is one small piece of this. It just so happens to be a piece that's very easy to point to and say something is wrong with this picture. But he's not the big picture. And he's certainly not culpable for the lack of justice and the lack of closure to this day. This is where culpability falls on the various authorities that have been involved in this case, what I consider the big picture. It starts with MPD, 
who clearly botched this investigation. MPD was followed by MBI and the AG's office, who were given an opportunity to right wrongs, but they too failed to find justice. Then came the release of Christian's case file, which was handled terribly, adding to everything else the Andriacchios have gone through. And now you have various public officials who believe the investigation was not handled properly, that many things do not add up, that Christian's body was moved, and there's possibly even a cleaning of the scene. And you have MPD's captain, Jay Arrington, who wants to investigate this case, and who has arrest warrants and strongly believes that culpable negligence took place. So you have all this, and then you have a DA saying that new evidence would be required to reopen the case. I just don't get it. There was enough evidence in 2017 when the arrest warrants were made. MPD's very own says there's enough evidence now. There's always been enough evidence. So you have all these agencies and public officials who are in positions to serve and protect and work on behalf of victims and their families. And this was the result. I don't really care to single out individuals or lay out rights or wrongs. The fact is, the system has failed the Andriacchios. That's the big picture. And if you're one of the people who finds the Andriacchios' diligence annoying or incessant or even crazy, then you're missing the point. All they have done is what they felt they had to. What they've done for their son is admirable. And they don't maintain a tunnel vision that this is only about Christian. One thing that has been a driving force of theirs is the thought that this could happen to someone else's child. And they don't want another family to go through what they've had to go through. So on that note, I'd like to zoom out a little further and talk about the bigger picture. Here's Ray's brother, Chris. So... You live in Meridian? I do. How long have you lived in Meridian? <laughs> 46 years. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I say the same thing. Didn't <laughs> just like it that much? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just don't know anything else, I guess. I understand. What do you think about Meridian? Meridian is a good place. The people here are good people, but it is a very cliquish town. Other friends of mine that live elsewhere, they say, oh, well, that's how every small town is. And it very well may be. Meridian's a good place to raise children. It's got good schools. But like every small town, there's, there's people that I'm not going to necessarily say run things, but have influence over the way things transpire, whether it be economics or law or you know, social. That part, I don't like. But all in all, Meridian is a good place. You're far away enough from um, the big city to, I mean, it it takes me 15 minutes to get anywhere I want to go. I mean, I haven't left, you know. And and this whole situation has not jaded me to Meridian as much as it is the leadership. You know, the city leadership is weak. You know, I don't want to lump everybody into that statement. We've got good people in our county government, in our city government. At this point in time, I think they're doing all that they can do to try to offset the ones who are not doing what they can do. You feel like they did everything they could do with this case? No. No. And there's a multitude of reasons why Christian was popular, and with that popularity, he attracted the good and the bad. 
You know, do I think Christian was a saint? By no means, I do not. But he was, his personality attracted all types of kids. And so he had the good and the bad influences. I wish that I would have been um, closer on a day-to-day basis with him to where he would have called and asked advice of me. You know, that's, that's probably my biggest regret is the fact that Christian and I were so much alike. You know, maybe I could have steered him in a different direction. What would you like to see come over the next year? I want peace for my sister. I don't have any animosity toward the city of Meridian or MBI. I want Ray to have closure. She has struggled a long time with this, her and Todd both. And I've been there every step of the way. And I've tried to put myself in her shoes because I've got three sons. And I want her to be at peace with whatever happens. And I'll be satisfied. Just, you know, having to go through everything, you, you of course, do become more politically involved and you start looking around things that I probably never paid attention to. And, I mean, I think that the buddy system and the, I mean, I guess the what you would consider corruption that has been going on for so long in Meridian that it's just, it, it is surprising at how blatant people are with it, that they don't even try to really cover it up. I mean, you look at all the different things, audio and video released over the last, let's say, year to two years on city government officials. And everybody gets outraged for about 24 hours, 48 hours, and then they move on and nothing's ever done. I mean, there has been things released that people should have been arrested for and just openly acknowledging bribes and payoffs and cover-ups and I mean nobody really blinks an eye and I think that it has become so normalized in Meridian and Lauderdale County that it's almost like people don't care and I think that people are going to have to start caring and realizing this isn't normal that it is abnormal for people to be so blatant with criminal behavior and that's gonna require you know a lot of change in thinking of just the everyday citizen and not be willing to accept that this is the kind of environment that you have to raise your kids in and that you know we should expect more I think that's the problem is we've all become conditioned to accept less and accept the status quo and if it doesn't impact us personally which i'm guilty of this too then you just ignore it because it's not really your problem and i think that we're going to have to be more proactive as a community and realize that it may not be impacting us today but a year from now it may be now my personal problem and it is impacting me and my family and you know that's what i try to tell people even about the situation with christian 
You know, if it can happen to me, it can happen to you and it can happen to your kid. And we all sit back and say, well, you know, my kid would never be in that situation. My kid would never do that. Or my kid would never be socializing with those kind of people. My mother always said, never say never, because you really don't know what's gonna happen down the road. So I, I just think that as a community, we've, I do feel like that there is a sense of community and, and working together that has come out of this whole situation with Christian and you know the podcast was kind of a trigger for that. It made people aware that we would never have been able to reach and I think you have really seen a coming together of the black and white community that has never happened before and I think that's great if nothing else comes of this that at least we can say that Christian's death triggered that. I think that it has made people aware that they do need to wake up and make change. I'm just afraid that people are going to get discouraged again and they're going to go back into that kind of apathetic mode instead of staying motivated and invigorated for change. I think talking about politics and talking about change and talking about problems in the community openly instead of just complaining about them behind closed doors and then doing nothing about it, I think if they see some reward for that, then it's going to trigger more change and more challenging the status quo and more willingness to, you know, kind of step out on a limb and maybe out of their comfort zone and do some things. Because, I mean, it really has gotten people involved in politics that would never have been involved and would not have really even cared. Because at this point, it does not necessarily touch them personally. But because of Christian's story, they realize that at any given day, it could touch them personally. The bigger picture is the current state of Meridian, Mississippi. Over the past 10 years, Meridian has come in well above the U.S. average in crime rates. That includes murders, rapes, robberies, and much more. And when I say well above the average, I mean it. Go look it up. Check out some of the charts they offer on citydata.com or go to Neighborhood Scout where you'll find this description. With a crime rate of 45 per 1,000 residents, Meridian has one of the highest crime rates in America compared to all communities of all sizes, from the smallest towns to the very largest cities. One's chance of becoming a victim of either violent or property crime here is 1 in 22. Within Mississippi, more than 91% of the communities have a lower crime rate than Meridian. Importantly, when you compare Meridian to other communities of similar population, then Meridian crime rate is quite a bit higher than average. Regardless of how Meridian does relative to all communities in America of all sizes, when compared to communities of similar population size, its crime rate per thousand residents stands out as higher than most. These are statistics I can't stand to see. I've met many residents of Meridian. These are good people. And what's alarming is when you talk to these people, you learn that it's deeper than crime itself. It's how crime is being handled in the city. The people of Meridian are aware of the issues that plague their city, and they want change. They care about one another, and even with the current state of things, they do their best to take pride in their city. That says a lot about the community, and I think it says a lot about the potential that Meridian has. We are awaiting response from District Attorney Cassie Coleman. 
but she has made it clear where she stands in a five-page statement that was released just a few weeks ago to the public. The statement contains a timeline of events related to Christian's case from February 26, 2014 to current. In closing, she states that she has offered to meet with the Andriacchios and the offer stands, and states that the DA's office is ready to receive and review any new evidence and that she will only resubmit to a grand jury if and when new evidence is received. We also reached out to District Attorney candidate Michael Grace, who is Cassie's opponent in the upcoming election. I was curious to get his take on things. Just curious, how long have you lived in Meridian? I lived in the district my whole life, with the exception of when I went off to college and law school. Would you mind just giving your overall thoughts on Meridian? I think the people of Meridian are very honest, hardworking, friendly folks, and they, they just want to see their town prosper and for crime to go down. Unfortunately, for the past several decades, the way that things have operated is that it, who you know is probably more important than what you know, and who you're connected to seems to carry more weight. And I think people are tired of that system of doing things, and they want to see a city and a district in which fairness and equity is the overall priorities. Right now, one of the most negative things I think that is affecting Meridian is the perception, real or not, that crime is out of control and that people are not being held accountable for their criminal acts. You know, there's also the issue of lack of jobs in Meridian. Hospital administrators and recruiters are having a trouble getting doctors to move to this area because of the perception of a high crime rate. So I think if there's a change in our system and then we have results that show that we are moving in the right direction, people's optimism, those seeds of optimism will start to take root and, and I believe our community will get better. For our justice system to work, not only does justice have to be done, but it also has to be seen to be done. And I think that's one of the reasons there's a cry out in this case is because there's a evident amount of inequities and injustices that have occurred, including releasing the case file. That that's not how the average citizen would want to be treated if they were in Christian's family shoes. Curious to get your thoughts of what you think went wrong with Christian's case and the handling of it. Well, I think the investigation from the beginning was a fiasco. You know, that kind of set the stage for everything moving forward. Whenever I'm looking at the case now, what I'm doing is looking to see what's the next thing to do if I was to get elected. And I disagree with my opponent's assertion that new evidence is needed to represent this case to the grand jury. I think there's enough evidence there to move forward. And then secondly, I would add, how can you gather evidence if you're not willing to, quote, open the case? At the very least, the, the investigation shows tremendous signs of incompetency on the part of the police department and the possibility that there was an extensive cover-up is still there and I believe the cover-up itself needs further investigation. I do not believe it's ever too late to right wrongs although there is a saying that says um, justice delayed is justice denied but uh, I think everything is kind of aligning itself now for this case to 
finally have some closure and for the people involved to be held accountable. I believe that the case should be presented to the grand jury uh, while also continuing to investigate it. And once arrests are made, I think you're going to see some traction as far as getting down to the truth of what happened to Christian Andriacchio. So to confirm, you believe that the case should be reopened? Absolutely. I think the case should be open regardless of the outcome of this district attorney's race. If I was to win the race, though, I believe the tools and the information that has been thus far gathered is enough to move forward. When you're a victim in the criminal justice system or a family member of a victim, sometimes you feel like the system is working against you. One of my promises is to be one of the most fierce and strong advocates for victims and victims' families has ever been in that office and to make sure their voice is heard. When I was about 15, my little stepbrother, who was 11 at the time, came home, and his name is Corey. Corey was adopted, and he has fetal alcohol syndrome. So Corey came home and told us that a relative had uh, molested him. My folks called law enforcement, and an investigation, quasi-investigation took place and the perpetrator took a polygraph and the investigator told my family that he had passed it. My folks were not satisfied with that because of the red tape that they experienced just trying to get the investigation started in the first place. So they went to the attorney general's office and as there they found out that local law enforcement should have contacted the attorney general's office in the first place because my stepbrother was classified as a vulnerable person because of his mental condition. So the AG's office gets involved and they tell my folks that the perpetrator actually failed the polygraph test. So they basically confirmed that the law enforcement had lied to my family to protect someone who was allegedly molesting an 11-year-old little boy that's mentally challenged. It's just unimaginable. Well, Bilbo ends up taking the case. It's presented to the grand jury. Two counts of lustful touching of a child and one count of sexual assault are returned. And right on the eve of trial, the district attorney's office dismisses it. Pre-trial diversion. So the guy who molested my little brother is free to go work in a school, drive a school bus, etc. He was not held accountable for what he did. And if you were to ask my family today, based off that experience, what would they do if they had it to do all over again? They wouldn't contact law enforcement. That's not the way the system is supposed to work. If somebody does you wrong, if someone does your child wrong, the system is supposed to encourage you to contact the authorities and let it be dealt with appropriately not encourage vigilante justice, not encourage you to take the law out into your own hands. That's more societal harm happens that way. And then, you know, that's one of the impetuses for me decided to go to law school. And it was one of the reasons I decided to run for district attorney. Our system is not doing right. I absolutely believe the Department of Justice needs to get involved and just take a look at not only the Christian Andriacchio case, but also the City of Meridian's administration as a whole.
You know, it's interesting to think that this was meant to be an investigation into the death of one man, Christian Andriacchio. And now look where we are. I never imagined it turning into this, but this is where it needs to go. When every person you ask about Christian ends up talking about a case similar to Christian's, or the history of crime in Meridian, whether drug trafficking or sex trafficking, the list goes on. Or someone they know, family or friends, who the system has failed. Or they start telling you who has ties to who, or who has dirt on who, or who you can't trust. Or how some public official made a crime disappear, and how other officials are spreading dirt on one another, trying to expose crime, whether it be bribery, corruption, or something else. Then this is where things need to go. This means you have problems much bigger than Christian's case. And maybe if the city of Meridian can get the attention it deserves, then Christian, in turn, can get the attention he deserves. So rather than air out all the dirty laundry that's been shared with us over the last year, we're going to approach this a different way. This is a letter to the U.S. Department of Justice. To whom it may concern. In order to restore public trust and assure the citizens of Mississippi that both their local and state law enforcement indeed do their due diligence to serve and protect citizens from harm and injustice, we implore you to consider opening a criminal investigation into the city of Meridian, including the Meridian Police Department and any current or former city officials. The city of Meridian is under a national spotlight due to our podcast, Culpable, which covers the death of 21-year-old Christian Andriacchio. His death was ruled a suicide after a 45-minute investigation when all signs pointed to foul play. We have reason to believe that corruption has played a role in the lack of justice in this case, but that's not what we are writing you about. While we would love the opportunity to discuss Christian's case with you, we are writing you because we learned through our experience working this case that there are much bigger issues and other major crime that the city is facing. Because of the national attention of this podcast, many locals have reached out to us and to Christian's family with personal experiences and information exposing very serious crimes such as sex trafficking and drug trafficking. We've also received information supporting the crime of corruption amongst local law enforcement and city officials. The citizens of Meridian, Mississippi are in need of your help to hold their officials accountable for any crimes they've committed and to ensure that the people that hold positions of power can maintain their responsibility to serve and protect the citizens of Meridian. Due to the position some of these individuals hold in Mississippi government and law enforcement, we are asking for an outside and independent investigation focused on determining what criminal activity is taking place in Meridian, Mississippi. We have compiled some information that we believe could be of some assistance. If you have any interest, please let us know and we'd be more than happy to share. Feel free to contact us with any questions or concerns you may have. Thank you for your consideration. Sincerely, Black Mountain Media and Tenderfoot TV. Many of you have reached out to us asking how you can help. Here's how you can help. Take some time to write your own letter to the Department of Justice. Tell them why you think it's time they get involved, especially if you're someone who has a personal story that you can share. We have also started a petition to further encourage the Department of Justice to investigate crime in Meridian. If you are for this cause and would like to support it, please go to our website, culpablepodcast.com, and at the very top of our homepage, click the link that says Our Petition. This will direct you to change.org, where you can sign our petition. 
Ray has also started a petition to the Department of Justice that is more centered around Christian's case. If you'd like to support her, again, go to our website, culpablepodcast.com, and at the very top, click the link that says Ray's Petition. This link will also direct you to change.org, where you can sign her petition. We spent a good portion of this episode discussing the big and the bigger pictures. And while that's certainly important, so is Christian. So I'd like to zoom back in on Christian for a minute and end this journey where we started it. Sylvia Cartwright said, we often plow so much energy into the big picture, we forget the pixels. As distracting as everything else can make this, the story has always been about Christian. Back in August of 2018, I sat down with the Andriacchios for the first time. I had spoken with Ray over the phone a few times leading up, so I had an idea of what to expect. I was expecting to hear about Christian, who he was, what happened to him, his death, how it was deemed a suicide, why they believe he was murdered, and all the evidence that supports their belief. What I did not expect was for this to become what it has become, and I mean that in a lot of ways, but I won't go into that. I was going to meet with them to begin the creation of this podcast. The Andriacchios were the first official recording. But I want to make something clear. I didn't get involved in this just to make a podcast. Culpable was created to bring attention and awareness to a case and also a city that needs it. And the hope was, and still is, to make a difference and to find justice for Christian and closure for the Andriacchios. The Andriacchios, and that includes you, Christian, are like family. So while this is our season finale, do not take the word finale too literally. Our work is far from over. We will continue investigating this, and if there's new evidence or a break in the case, we will make it known. We're not going away. We will remain dedicated to this until there is justice and closure. And with that said, I'd like to make an announcement. It's our understanding from comments made by public officials that new evidence could result in the reopening of this case, and we would like to help them get whatever it is they need. So we, the producers of Culpable, are offering a reward of up to $100,000 for new information or evidence that leads to an arrest and conviction. You can see terms on our website at culpablepodcast.com reward, or you can leave us a voicemail by calling 470-300-4915. We thank you for your consideration. On behalf of the entire Culpable team, I want to thank each and every one of you for listening. Take care, look out for each other, and be kind to one another. Till next time. Culpable is a production of Resonate Recordings and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13, written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper. Executive producers are Jacob Bozarth, Mark Mennery, Dennis Cooper, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Additional production by Whitney Bozarth, Courtney Cooper, Meredith Stedman, and Mason Lindsay. Audio editing and sound design by Resonate Recordings. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at ResonateRecordings.com. 
Our theme music and score is by Dirt Poor Robbins. Cover art by Drew Bardana. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcast. Show notes as well as bonus content can be found on our website, culpablepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening. Thank you.